Welcome to the VoxGig Podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Maria Ashby is a developer advocate for botcube.io. This is a member project of CubeShop, an open source accelerator for Kubernetes projects. One of my favorite questions to ask developer advocates is where they would start on day one. And Maria would start with community, and in particular, building chat communities. We also talk about live streams and how they are also really effective. We also talk about how Maria ended up in developer relations. This is a subject I find really fascinating, how people come to work in this particular space. It's always from such amazing, diverse backgrounds. In the latter part of our conversation, we get really deep into why Kubernetes has been so successful from a developer relations perspective. It's fascinating stuff to understand the strategies involved. Maria has some really great insights and understanding of how it actually happened. Okay, let's talk to Maria. Maria, welcome. Welcome to the Boxgate Fireside podcast to talk about all things developer relations. How are you doing today in wonderful New York City? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I get to talk about myself for 30 minutes. So yes, I'm you excited. do. It's wonderful. <laughs> and we want to hear all about it. Okay. So uh, you work in the Kubernetes space. Um, and I, you know, I do want to ask you kind of about your personal journey into developer relations, which is so many people are going into it now. It's one of those things that helps guide people down that particular career pathway. Um, but maybe we, let's start with what you actually do day to day, right, um, in CubeShop. Sure. So, um, I, so I am the developer advocate for BotCube, which is a CubeShop project. So CubeShop is a Kubernetes accelerator. It's the first of its kind. So the founders were um, approached by some investors that were interested in the Kubernetes space. And they basically told them to um, make a bunch of open source projects and see if you can commercialize them in some sort of open core um, model. So um, BotCube is one of the five projects and um, it sits in the troubleshooting space. So um, I've been working on really community building with the BotCube community and working with other communities because we have a plugin system. So I've been working with you know, Flux and um, Helm and Captain most recently. So I'm doing kind of a little bit of everything. Some days I'm working on demos. Some days I'm um, working on blogs. Some days I'm helping with um, updating documentation, onboarding, user experience. It's kind of a jack of all trades situation, but I feel like each day is like a month of growth. Um, and it's really exciting. The Kubernetes space at the moment is seems to be just going um, at kind of light speed. Uh, there seems to be a lot of stuff happening. I'm so uh, I'm kind of frustrated because uh, in my uh, the first version of our Boxing platform was built on Google Cloud on Kubernetes in 2018. We had to do everything ourselves. Um, you know that was it was it was kind of tough. We we, we just had to figure out Kubernetes without any sort of tooling. Um, nowadays, it looks a lot easier, right? You have all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it's honestly the power of the community. So 
never before have I ever seen a tech community that's so people first oriented. So like you said, um, it's easier to use because of the, all the tooling, but the reason those tools came out is because people had problems and they had a space to talk about it and they had somebody or a lot of people get into one space and say, oh, I have that problem too. Let's fix it together. And and even in my own experience working in data science and um, going to university, I'd never seen that level of collaboration ever before in my life. And I think it just shows the power of like, you know, co- collaboration and like cooperative learning and um, and seeing that like everybody has a place. So, you know, the observability people need help with from the CICD people and the CICD people need help from the monitoring people. And they all kind of sit in this like almost open arena of innovation that's going on. So I think that's part of the reason why you see a new tool coming out basically every day because people have not only the resources to do it because the resources have been around for a long time, but they have the community and the motivation to do it. So it's really showing like a kind of anti like, you know, the tech bro monoculture in the past of like, it's just yeah, me and my friends yeah. in a garage and I'm going to do everything myself. It's the complete opposite. It's like, here's my idea and I need help. Let's work it's, on it together. It does seem to be a really healthy ecosystem. Right? Yeah. I and mean, you just kind of see that in the way that people interact on Twitter and other social spaces. So, okay. I'm kind of confused about the accelerator thing. So is it a startup accelerator? Is, is it an open source accelerator? How does it work? So that's a really good question. <laughs> so it it's basically a startup accelerator. The goal at the end of the day is to commercialize in some way, but um, it's an open first, open source first model. So the first step is to build the product or take on an open source community. So for example, um, BotCube was started by InfraCloud um, and CubeShop um, acquired them and their community. So you first work with the community, get your problems sorted, and then you you sort of work on a freemium model with product-led growth to eventually get to becoming a commercial company. Think of like the the models of you know an acuity that you know is very is very um, central to the Argo community, but they have a commercial offering as well. So the goal is to repeat that same model in different spaces. So there's Test Cube, which is about testing, and Trace Test, that's another testing. Um, project as well. There's Monocle that's working about, you know, um, on YAML and more of that infrastructure. There's Cube First with, for deployments. And, um, so it's it's about kind of repeating that uh, open core model. But everything has to be open source, right? So it's, yeah. it's it, okay. So <laughs> it, it, it sounds a little build it and they will come in that you're, yes. you're built an open source tool and you put it out there and do you actively then generate a community or how does that work? So um, I um, at, was lucky and I didn't have to build a community from scratch, but a lot of my colleagues did. So, I mean, you, it's it's a pretty uh, open space. So you would just go to a different communities. So, for example, um, the Cube First team works a lot with the GitOps community. So you go into the GitOps community and say, hey, I have a really cool product. Um, can you try it out? And then you kind of build from there. I mean, a lot of things still in this day and age is so crazy, still has their own version of word of mouth. And yeah. I think 
we're kind of seeing that um, show more and more. But instead of word of mouth from your friend down the street, it's a word of mouth to your friends in India over Slack. <laughs> yes. Oh, completely. Right. Um, okay. The, I guess the, the thing about it is, though, that you there's a very deliberate aspect to this. Um, developer relations in the past has been somewhat organic, right? Where you had a senior engineer that ended up speaking at conferences and then they sort of develop into the role. Whereas in your case, it sounds like it's a really deliberate, uh, to use a VC term, right? Go-to-market strategy. Um, but walk us through exactly what you, how do you execute that strategy, right? So you have this new Kubernetes tool. Uh, do, do you sit down with the, the, the sort of classic three pillars of developer relations and say, what are we going to do for code? What are we going to do for community? What are we going to do for content? Or what, what approach do, do, do you use? I like to do the um, community first approach. Mm -hmm. So I first, like when I first started the job um, back in February, the first thing I did was go to some users um, and even just like show them the product and then just have them tell me what's what their main problems are. Like you first find the problem and then next um, I would go um, make some content on it. So you first start with tutorials or just like use cases and say, okay, um, so the main selling point of BotCube is that you can do troubleshooting collaboratively, collaboratively from any communication platform. So you talk to an SRE who has the problem of, oh, I'm on call and my teammates are on a different time zone than me. So then you ask them what kind of features they're looking for and you kind of like work backwards that way. Um, and then for like the code piece, um, I am not the most talented engineer. So I would, you know, make a basic prototype for, let's say, you know, uh, a new plugin um, and then talk about it, make content around it um, and kind of spread it that way. Gotcha. And then do you set up meetups? Do you sponsor meetups? Do you set up discords or Slack channels? Yes. Yeah, so I we're really active on Slack right now. So we'll have little campaigns. So we'll have campaigns where we'll have some people in the community you know, tell us our experience. Um, we're going to have some, we have some contributor um, highlights for them. So in the future, we hope to have more like office hours where anybody can come in and talk about their experience with BotCube and um, have, give contributors, you know, um, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to talk about all the cool projects that they're working on because it's a tool that's inter interconnected with a lot of other tools that can easily be, you know, um, put together in almost like a Zapier kind of way. Yeah, um, so, yeah. Um, kind of seeing what other people are working on and like, it's almost like write that down and um, put it out there. And I, I work with a very dynamic uh, development team. So I can kind of just like throw out my crazy ideas in Slack and they can get me a, they can work with me to make a prototype pretty easily. Um, in a week or two. Oh, you could have fun with that. I mean, you could be really <laughs> evil with that as well. <laughs> so, what works best? And I mean, from what from from your perspective, in terms of the especially the community engagement, is is it Slack? Is is it office hours? Or are you still experimenting? Um, I'm still experimenting, but at least for me, um, I'm a live stream kind of person. I I love oh, okay. love. Okay talking to people um, live. Um, 
I, I used to, well, we'll get into it later, but I used to teach a lot. So it kind of feels like back to that classroom workshop feel. Um, I, I have, to, I haven't experimented with like regular office hours, but when I have the opportunity to go on podcasts like these or um, live streams for when they're new releases, I feel like that's such a fun time to um, kind of get, talk to people. Cause even just seeing their little comments pop up in the chat or, you know, somebody talking to you um, in a DM over Slack. Oh, I loved your live stream. I have these extra questions. I didn't want to put in the main chat and you can kind of get started that way. Um, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I feel like it's easier when you kind of see the people behind the tools that you're working on. Right. And see that they're just regular people, you know? So, I mean, to do the live streams, what are you using? Do you do them on Twitch or, or what way do you do it? I'm using StreamYard mostly. StreamYard. Okay. Um, okay. So you guys are setting up, a, you know, here's an official, this is going to be live stream at such and such a time. Come join us. That, that type of approach. Yes. Yeah. It's, so we mostly uh, stream on YouTube. Okay. Gotcha. Um, YouTube. Okay. So for, for people who are thinking about doing this, do you have any advice or guidance right let's say I'm, let's say i'm starting from scratch right i'm i'm uh, i'm a startup i've got some i'm an open core startup whatever and I've, I've been doing a whole bunch of content and i have my sdks and apis documented or whatever and now i want to do live streaming but i've never done it before <laughs> so how do i where do i start how do i how do i set it up how do i make sure my event is successful well the number one thing I like to say is that make sure you're actually giving people something. So don't just have an event where it's like, oh, look how cool my product is, all these features without connecting it to an issue that people are having. Or if it's, you know, a Kubernetes um, monitoring tool, then tell, teach people about what Kubernetes monitoring even is. So like, don't assume things about your audience. I think that's the first thing. Um, and number two is like, remember that, like progress is not linear. Like some live streams will be better than others. Sometimes you'll get 12 viewers. Sometimes you'll get 24 viewers or a hundred viewers or a thousand viewers or 10,000. It's not linear. And think about, okay, I don't care about, I don't need, you know, 10,000 people here, but I, I need five people that really resonated with what I'm talking about. Cause I think that's worth it to me. 30 minutes of time of preparation is worth, you know, connecting with somebody, five good people. Um, and then lastly, um, I think I like to wear something fun. Okay. <laughs> if I feel good, if I feel good, yeah. um, I, I feel more confident in myself. I feel like I can be, you know, pretend that I have 10 more years of engineering um, experience than I actually do when I'm wearing a cool outfit, but that's my own personal thing. Um, I also like to listen to um, Beyonce's Renaissance album before all my live streams for a little extra um, confidence boots. And remember also, like, the audience isn't paying that much attention. Like, I think of my own attention span. Usually when I'm watching live streams, I'm, like, half watching. So Oh, yeah, you're trying to multitask, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you make a little mistake or you skip a slide, nine times out of ten, nobody will notice. And somebody who does notice, they're probably looking too hard and you probably have, like, a, you know, a fan. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a good thing. Uh, uh, we recently had a guest on this podcast, um, Trish Lynch, who's a TV anchor. Oh, wow. And I was talking to her about uh, presenting to camera because I 
you know, we, we do a monthly uh, remote meetup around developer relations. And I, I really struggle so much with presenting to camera. I'm so used to doing it at conferences. Um, and it's interesting that you that you are now saying, okay, wear something fun and get some energy from Beyonce, that type of stuff, because uh, that's what Trish was telling me is as a professional TV anchor, you've got to amp it up for the camera. You've got to you've got to go 110% more than you think uh, to make it work. Um, you've seen that you've discovered that as well. Oh, yes. I mean, just the fact that like, I think the screen like reduces your connection by 20%. So you have to like mm. overemphasize because think about a conference. Okay. You're in a, you're in the hall. Those people read all the options and went to your talk for a reason. When people are looking at a live stream, they're like, oh, okay, I saw this on Twitter. Let me click. It's not the same level of interest. So you have to do a little bit more to, you know, gain their um, attention and keep it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because when you go to a conference, you've you've sort of pre-invested, you've traveled. Yeah. Um, whereas the live stream is very much kind of pick and mix, right? You can kind of drop in and out. So you've got to, you've got to amp it up a little bit. Uh, I'm also um, encouraged by uh, the fact that you say progress is not linear. I mean, we found that with with our own meetup. Uh, you know, we had a we had a completely awesome one two months ago. Loads of engagement. Um, speakers were both speakers were awesome. Um, but then other ones, you, you know, your you, your audience is down to fifty percent, and you're, you're what's going on? What what did I do wrong? <laughs> right. Uh, it's it's is it just important to be consistent and keep keep coming back and and keep it working or it, do we just have to accept that it is going to be nonlinear? Yeah, I think you just have to accept that. Like for example, okay, I have a meetup. It's you know downtown and it's winter time and a thousand people show up. Maybe a thousand people showed up because they were cold and they wanted some hot chocolate and they told them to let you talk. So there's things that you can't control. But yeah. if, if you do, you know, 10 meetups and sometimes a thousand people show, show up, sometimes 10 people show up, you can still look back and said, I have 10, you know, 10 months of experience or 10 weeks of experience that I'm better at this skill. Like making, making a meetup is a skill. Live streaming is a skill. So it's almost like you're putting in your reps in like the gym, you know, or, you know, a sport. So when you're, you know, playing a basketball game, not every game is going to be a good game, but those reps matter for your, your overarching goal. Yes. Yeah. Do you think the, the choice of speaker, how much does that matter? Um, I think it matters a lot. Um, I learned this from being a teacher. Um, it doesn't matter what your tenure is or how experienced you are if nobody can resonate with your content or understand with your content. So I think uh, people in tech are particularly guilty of this um, where they think because it's a complicated topic, like Kubernetes is not simple. They, no, have to no, it isn't. All, they have to use all of the lingo. They have to, you yeah. know, put the level really high be, so it's, so it can be a real technical talk, but that doesn't matter if, nobody can understand and can't even finish it. So the speaker matters and sort of, do they want, do they have the empathy to put themselves in the shoes of the audience of somebody who doesn't even know about Kubernetes walked into this talk? Can I talk to them? 
And if they can't do that, then the talk probably won't go well, or the live stream won't go well, or you need to, you need to compensate by having another person, you know, be able to ground it to be able to read the audience and ground it to the level of the audience if they're not able to do that themselves. Yeah, and, and good speakers are they are able to do that, right? They can, they have that yeah. little bit of magic that they can they can pull that together. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about your personal journey into this role. Um, because as you said, you, you know, you did data science, you did teaching. So how did you end up doing developer relations? Was that ultimately a choice where you looked at it and went, that's, that's for me? Did it happen by accident? <laughs> Just walk us through how you ended up, uh, where you are now. Where should I begin? Um, I, it was an accident. Like I think most good things in life. Um, so when I got to college, um, I was started as a mechanical engineering major, and then I took a physics class. It absolutely brutalized me, and I knew I didn't want to take as much physics. Um, I wanted to go to computer science, but then I visited a class, and everybody looked really sad. So I, (laughs) (laughs) everybody looked really miserable and tired. Like I'm not doing this for four years, y'all. Um, so I decided to do industrial system engineering because, um, they made Python mandatory and, um, it was a lot of statistics. And from that, I was like, oh, perfect. Let me do data science. I watched the big short. I'm going to be a quant end of story. Okay. Okay. Um, it didn't work out as planned. So I worked, um, as a data science intern, my freshman summer, that summer was COVID. Um, and a lot of things changed. So I ended up um, working a lot in education. Um, so I would, I got a tutoring job, um, as a Python, Java and web development teacher for kindergarten through 12th grade. So most of my students were between the ages of like seven and 13. And I just loved, like absolutely loved seeing the light in those kids' eyes when it clicked, when they were able to make their own, you know, Mario game. And they said, oh my gosh, let me try this at home. I can't wait to, you know, experiment more at home. And I just loved seeing that click. And that's an amazing see- experience. Wow. And a tough audience, I would say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, very. You have to keep it interesting. They don't, <laughs> they don't care. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. They just want, they want it to be yeah. fun <laughs> and they want, you know, to learn, learn, learn. And, um, it was just so amazing, especially like um, from my own perspective, like I, I did robotics and um, I was kind of pushed out of it because it was at my brother's school and they didn't want any girls there. And so oh, no, I, really? would, oh. I would take particular care of the girls and make yeah. sure that it was a fun time and really show them that like, it's not about being good at it. You're seven. You're not going to be good at it. That's, that's the point. It's about having the interest and like having the skill set because you can pick it up later in high school, you can pick it up later in college, but at least you tried. And to yeah, see that yeah. it's not that it's not that crazy if you break it up into small steps. And yeah, you, that, that, and that's a, that's such a valuable um sort of in thing to internalize is it, it's okay to make mistakes and you can just do it for fun. Exactly. You know, you don't have to get the marks, right? <laughs> you exactly. just do it. Um, exactly. Yeah. You, so it was it was great. It was a different perspective of technology in the tech industry because I thought it was like, oh, I gotta 
you know, learn Python so I can get a job and make money and blah, blah, blah. But just seeing, you know, 10 year olds learn Python just for, for funsies to do something over the summer completely changed the way I view um, technology, I think. I'm sure, I'm sure that has been a valuable experience. You, you probably understand, understand things about developer relations that, um, I mean, I, I'm, you know, classical old engineer, you know, who was told to go speak at conferences. Um, but goodness me, I couldn't teach and <laughs> save my life. Um, you must have, you, you probably internalized all sorts of, I don't know, almost tacit skills, I guess, around teaching or around learning. Definitely, definitely. And I think it was just like really um, humbling. Like, you don't have to be the best engineer to have like value and purpose. And I think that kind of changed my trajectory. Because I thought, okay, the only way I can be in tech is if I'm a software engineer doing this, that, and the other, or I'm a product engineer and I'm the best at everything. But it kind of showed me like, no, like I'm doing a service to these kids by lifting them up. And like, I didn't see a, I didn't see a black female engineer until I watched Hidden Figures. And that came out in 2016. And I grew up in DC in a very like, you know, active, diverse community. So even just seeing me, yeah. Code with them. Yeah. That's that's a contribution to their lives and hopefully the industry later on. So I think it really um put me on the path that I'm at, at now. So after that, um I took a semester off of school. I think Zoom school was like getting to my soul. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um so I uh, I was supposed to go to France and then I think it was like the Delta variant. So I didn't want to be stuck in a country without um being able to go home. So I decided last minute to um, apply for an internship. But then um, this uh, YouTuber that I watched, she's this Nigerian YouTuber, uh, Vercola, at the time, she was a developer advocate at Google. And she was talking about how, you know, it was both creative and she gets to um, write, build content, make YouTube videos, and also write code. And I was like, okay, let me do this. So LinkedIn, being my best friend, um, I just like applied for a bunch of developer advocate positions. I also applied for, you know, software engineering internships. Um, mm. But I got, um, I somehow got an interview at, at this uh, startup called Armory. Um, Jennifer Hooper, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for seeing me and seeing the potential in me. And it's just been a wild journey from there. Um, I think the idea is that if I can teach, you know, seven-year-olds um, object-oriented programming, it shouldn't be hard to teach some thirty-year-old developers. Yeah, that's a. <laughs> I think I think you've got a little bit of a superpower there uh, compared to most <laughs> dev advocates. <laughs> uh, wow, Nigeria is kind of interesting, isn't it? They seem to have a really healthy software scene at the moment. Ah, uh, yes, yes, it's been amazing. Um, so my I'm Nigerian um, too. My mom um, immigrated here and uh, when she was around my age, actually, um, and. Every time I go to a conference, I I make my my Nigerian family goes bigger and bigger, and it's so like India, Nigeria, like the students there, the young people there are like so hungry for technology and like um, building solutions. And I think this is my I'm I'm no um, you know poli sci major or you know world global relations leader, but I think it's the idea that. Tech allows you to 
have more agency. Like the idea that you can change your community from your laptop and really make a profound impact, I think is a very powerful thing. And I think individuals from that country are seeing that they're saying, okay, I can't trust the government to, you know, make sure my roads are, you know, clear, but I can build an app that will help my community. You know, I can build, you know, uh, the Nigerian version of Square to help, you know, the the local lady at the shop to have um, help her um, with her transactions, things like that. That's such a citizen, yeah, citizen democracy, right? It's yeah, amazing. Exactly. exactly. So I think it's just so amazing to see like my brethren um, kind of take it on in stride, like. I mean, Nigerians are very prideful, but I, I really feel um, a lot of compassion. And I'm so blessed to be in a space where I never have to hide my identity at all. I can be Maria Nigerian-American, Maria Beyonce enthusiast, Maria, you know, dog lover, all openly and all publicly. And it doesn't take away from my technical skills or what my CV looks like. And I think that's a very powerful thing. Yeah, and it is so so different. Um, you know, when I th- when I think about it, I started in this industry, coding in the late nineties. Um, it was quite toxic and competitive. Um, and I'm glad it's changed. <laughs> I'm glad it ha- it has changed. It, it and it took a while, and it's only it's it, it it's only really quite recent. Uh, what I, what I what I what I really like about the um, the the stuff that I see coming out of Nigeria is that it's happening in Nigeria, right? It's it, it like you say it's happening locally. It's it doesn't seem to be the case that people have to emigrate anymore, mm-hmm. right? There's all of this tech kind of empowers them to improve their own places, um, which I find really hopeful as well. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think it's also like a nature of like the political scene. So, okay, you can't get a visa. What are you going to do next? And where are people that are very adaptable? So, okay, you see this emerging technology, you see the rise of remote work, all you need is internet and you just run with that. Okay, I can't, I can't get into the Microsoft office in London. I'm going to make my own company here and hire Nigerians. Because um, they experience a lot of hiring discrimination, um, which is insane. Because every every single Nigerian engineer that I meet at these conferences, you look at their background, you look at the way that they talk about it, and you're like, "Why aren't you running something? Why aren't you running it?" You know? And um, yeah, yeah. And they're very, so strong. They're like just strong engineers. Yes, yes. Because you have to be. You have, you have to, to be. be. Yeah. You have to be twice as good to get half as much. I've been told that my entire life and it, unfortunately it's in the you know 22 years I've been on this planet and it hasn't changed, but hopefully by building these opportunities locally and having remote work, you don't even need all of your teammates in the same place. It won't be like that for the next generation. Yeah. And, uh, and remote is here to stay. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> people try to force engineers back into offices. Uh, I mean, I'm, I work in a small city in the southeast corner of Ireland on the edge of Europe in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, my businesses have always had to be remote um, going back years and years. You know, when, when COVID happened and everybody's 
getting worried about remote. I was like, okay, well, you know, get used to it. Um, and that's another thing I think that is an enabler is that remote is now much, much more acceptable um, across the board. Are you are you seeing that? Are you do you think it's embedded enough now, or are you still seeing this move to try and force people back into offices? Well, I think it depends on the people. And I'm gonna put on my, you know, militant youth hat. Corporations have lost over eight hundred million dollars of value in uh, commercial real estate. They're not gonna go down kicking. They're not yeah. gonna be like, ah, yeah. oh. they're gonna be like, ah, oh, be remote. You have to fight for your rights. Like you have to fight for, you know, the things that you want. So if if we as a community you know, stay strong and say, okay, here are the benefits and even spin it in a way that the corporations at large can see it as, you know, a place to stay, it'll stay. But if we don't fight and just let be passive as, you know, they try to force people back into office just to, you know, get the returns on their investments instead of, you know, you know, paying their workers better. Um, <laughs> yeah. It would um, change. It would change things, and I think also like the fact that remote work has enabled more women to stay in the workplace right. is not yeah. anything to sniff at. And if there is, you know, government, to, and maybe not government, but a large, you know, push for you know, remote work as a form of equity, I think that'll keep it here. But if we just, you know, kind of ride the wave and put put the, our future in the hands of, you know, corporate entities, we won't get the results that we want. Yeah. So be conscious about it. Exactly. Support yeah. those companies that, that are um, looking ahead. Uh, okay. We have a little bit of time left for one of the topics that we, we thought we might get to, which is uh, just the Kubernetes open source community, uh, which I kind of find fascinating because... <laughs> Uh, it's not really an organic community. Um, it ha it has been cons commercially constructed, but at the same time, it it feels very friendly and very healthy. Um, and there's a lot of activity going on in it, and the people, it, none of it feels forced. Um, do you have you have some perspectives on this? I, I'm not, it's a very general, open question. Uh, I'm just kind of anthropologically interested in what happened here. <laughs> right. Well, and maybe this will end up being a blog post and maybe I'm influenced by Metallo, but I think it's almost like a way that like the Barbie movie has been okay. where it kind of becomes like a identity thing or I'm a, I'm a part of the Kubernetes uh, community. I'm, I'm a, I'm a part of something. It's, it's something that you can identify with. I don't really think there's been, tech communities where you can really tie your identity or like, oh, I went to KubeCon and I met my Kubernetes folks. Mm. So I think that identity building has been very deliberate in the same way that like, you know, Mattel has branded Barbie pink. So when you're wearing it, it's, it's a part of your identity. It's like an identifier. So I think that's been really key. And I think another aspect of it is, you know, I'm a Kelsey Hightower stan. I'll always be. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Right. Single-handedly. <laughs> yeah. I, I think he's really been a huge aspect of the way it's worked. Uh, 
the community building has worked because he's kind of showed you that like being an engineer doesn't really have like a archetype. You just have to have a computer and a passion. Yeah. And being a community contributor doesn't just mean code. Your documentation matters too. Your uh, technical writing blogs matter too. And I think that's like the, the first time and once again, I'm a little fetus in comparison to the rest of the industry, but from my perspective, I think that's the first time we're really talking about that. So people are rushing to a community like that, like full transparency. Do I get up and dream about Kubernetes? No, but I absolutely love talking to the people in the community. I love meeting people from Australia, India. I love going to KubeCon and I love being inspired. And that's all a part of the community and identity building. So I don't even feel like I'm being pitched to almost. So Yeah, yeah. And do you think that was deliberately constructed or do you, do you think all this was just a happy accident? Probably a mix of both. I think yeah. that they saw it working and then they pushed, pushed for okay. it. Okay, okay. They were paying attention. Yes, yes. And, you know, leaders like Kelsey at the beginning, I think also helped with that too. And um, just having like the Linux Foundation, the CEF and CNCF um, kind of act as, you know, vendor neutral third parties as well. And having them incorporated um, is helping maintain that community feel. Like even just, you know, the Google GSOC program and them uh, spearheading Kubernetes, like, I know a lot of developers that got their start in Kubernetes around my age from doing the Google Summer of Code program. So even just yeah, thinking, like, yeah. let's go to the students. We see that computer science education is not up to date with the industry. So why don't we just go straight to the students? That's built community in that way too. Yeah. So they, they're graduating with the skill set. Yeah. Um, and not I, only I, the skill set, but the you graduate as an evangelist. Like when I first learned Python, I used Jupyter Notebooks. From this from from this day, I still, the first thing I pick up when I'm trying to do the data science project, I pick up a Jupyter Notebook. Is it the best for me? Maybe not, but it's because it's something I, I worked with, I grew up with. So they're kind of trying to do that with, with the Kubernetes community. And the, and the KubeCon conferences themselves. So who's running those? Um, it's the Linux Foundation primarily, and they have a board. So it's complicated. It's it's like the politics of it all. I mean, they, it's community, but it's also, okay, people are spending a lot of money on sponsorships too. So, you know, a Google or an AWS are more likely to be at the forefront yeah. than smaller companies. However, they do make an effort to make it more equitable. Like my first coupon experience, I, I went on a scholarship. Right. Um, they do that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a mix. It's like a mix in that kind of way. That's why I kind of feel like it's similar to like the Barbie marketing where it's like, okay, I know I'm being sold to, but I really like the way it makes me feel. So I'm going <laughs> to yeah. keep going with it. <laughs> they, just, they just turned up the fun to 11. So it, it kind of works. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I've seen this before in other spaces. Um, so I guess my my background in the last 10 years would have been more in the Node.js world of things. Um, very hard to make money directly with conferences. Some people do, um, but it does tend to 
get very commercialized. Um, you tend to have to have some entity with a bit of cash to bankroll the conference. Um, and maybe it just breaks even, but it, it enables a lot of community stuff. Um, and, and by the sounds of it, in the Kubernetes community, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, there seems to be uh, entities that understand the, the necessity, the health of doing that, um, which I, it, I, must be one of the reasons why it's worked. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating space for me. Uh, I've used Kubernetes, but I'm no expert. Struggled with it, in fact. Um, Anybody who says they're an expert is lying to you. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I mean, I've looked at writing agents and, and stuff, and I'm like, oh man, I don't know. <laughs> That looks hard, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, again, it's it's just one of those core tech technologies now. I think you know, you, you kind of have to know it a little bit. Yes, yes, but you, it's okay. Like, and that's why I I like to always be transparent. It's like it's okay not to be the best, and it's okay to like you know sit sit for an hour and look at the docs and figure your way way through it. So, I think. I kind of hesitate when people are like, oh, it's it's going to be a new requirement. But I'm like, I feel like you're almost putting too much on people. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I think especially like just working in this space and like seeing, you know, different people. I think that is like a toxic mindset where you're kind of expected to have your work be your whole life. Like. Yes. Oh no, no, that's not. Yeah, that's. And you know, you still see it sometimes. You still see job ads or whatever where people are going, "Oh, I need rockstar coders, whatever." And this kind of scary stuff where they're going, "Oh, you know, you're, we're going to be your family. Your work is going to be your family," which is like, "Oh no, that's that's not right. <laughs> it's your work." I hate that. I hate that. Uh, I hate that so much because I'm like, "Are you kidding me? You will you yeah. will drop me with an email with a Slack message and have." <laughs> And and leave me, sure, to the, right. me to the curb. So I hate that. I hate when people say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, of course, I'm kind of biased because I'm European, and that's that's our, that's our mindset to begin with. Um, but you know, it, it it does happen over here as well. Uh, you know, people get put under people get put under pressure, especially young people in who are just starting out in their careers. Um, I I know it's not cool, but just say no, kids, uh, because. I mean, that, that, that's one thing that I think a lot of people early in their careers don't understand is how much power they have and how dependent companies are on them, really. Yeah. Uh, you think your boss is, is kind of like a, an overlord or something, but you know what? <laughs> they're winging it too, and they're trying to figure out ways to get you to do what they need, but they can't make you do it. Right. I, I completely right. agree. Ever since I, I found out how much money is in technical recruiting, I kind of walk a little different now. I'm like, yeah, you yeah. know what? It's going to be very expensive for you to like find somebody else and have a bunch of turn. I should ask for like the things that I need to do my, my work well. Cause it's like a two way street. Like if you make, if you give, if you make me miserable, if I, if I'm anxious, if I spend 25% of my work day, you know, hyping myself up to, you know, write a pull request because I'm I'm afraid of doing it incorrectly and getting, you know, mocked for it. That's a waste of your time. No, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy. You know, yeah. That's like, you know, why would you, it's, it's, 
it's more cost effective to keep people because people will treat your product well if you treat them well. Exactly. And the people in your organization that have made the biggest mistakes are often the most valuable, right? Because exactly. now they've learned. Uh, hey, you know what, what I like to say, especially to people who are kind of afraid and, and you know, sometimes we work with um, freelance engineers in different parts of the world and because they're effectively running their own business, they're, they get really scared to admit to errors. Um, but I always try to say, you know, the CEO makes the biggest mistakes by far. Any mistake you make is nothing compared to the mistakes I make as CEO, right? Because I'm, I'm steering the whole ship. I'm driving it right into icebergs. Right. Uh, so if you do a pull request wrong, well, uh, at least you did the pull request. Exactly. Right? That's, that's, that's like 90%. Uh, it's a much bigger mistake to do nothing. Exactly. Right? Just do something. Right. Uh, and, any, and and you know what helps helps me get through the day? Nothing has radicalized me more than hearing that the CEO of Peloton, the previous one, knew nothing about finance and was not interested in it. And oh, yeah. yeah. To the ground and they just <laughs> let him for years. So I'm like, okay, if this man can get away with this, yeah. I can, I can I, I'll be fine. <laughs> I'll be okay, I think. It's uh, it would it would scare you how many CEOs do not know the basics of accounting. <laughs> um, if you sit down and watch a YouTube video, a, a TikTok short telling him about the basics of a uh, corporate finance, then I don't yeah. know it. I'll be. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maria, thank you so much. This has been a really, really great conversation, and I'm I'm leaving it in a much more hopeful mood, actually. So lots of energy. Uh, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. And I'm I'm happy that you're happy. It's Friday. It and is, one of my is. favorite things to do and what I love about DevRel is, you know, making people feel a little bit better about themselves. Excellent. Wonderful stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgeek.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at Voxgeek. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.